Hello and welcome to Dissecting Philosophy with Dr. McDonald. In this special episode, I'll be discussing Plato's Mino. And this is part one of the discussion that deals with the first half of the dialogue. And next week, I'll be having a discussion in part two, where it will cover Mino's paradox and Plato's theory of recollection. So for today's episode, then, we'll be discussing the first half of the Mino and covering quite a topic that usually gets debated quite frequently. And that is the discussion of the difference between nature versus nurture. And so we'll be touching upon the issues there between how much of our knowledge is something that is inborn within us and that we have when we're babies compared to how much do we then learn from experience. And it's one of those issues that pops up quite frequently within philosophy because numerous different people throughout history have also been interested in that question. Then after the discussion of nature versus nurture, we'll get into Mino's definition of what virtue is, because that's what the overall dialogue for the Mino discusses, the question of what is virtue. Then we'll go into problems with Mino's definition, and then go into what Plato wants to say, and how can we reach a clear and concise definition for things how do we reach a clear, nice, simple answer to things? And then, rounding off, we'll be going into talk about, as we like to do, pulling it all back into our everyday life, everyday examples, as well as a discussion of ourself and self-identity in the midst of all this. And so, let's kick us off then into the discussion of nature versus nurture. And why is this such an important question is because the Mino itself deals with that specific question of whether our knowledge is something that is acquired from our experience or is our knowledge inborn. And in philosophy, there's a couple of posh concepts that distinguish both forms of knowledge. And knowledge from our experience is called a posteriori. That is a-P-O-S-T-E-R-I-O-R-I. And then, knowledge that is innate and inborn is called a priori. That is A-P-R-I-O-R-I. -R -R -I. So, why is it good to know those concepts? 
is because they are frequently used and in case you're overlooking at essays or articles and books then what will happen is they'll use these concepts when discussing them so when you see it you'll go aha I know exactly what that means I know that a posteriori means knowledge from our experience I know that a priori is innate knowledge and is inborn and of course this is not only a question that is made philosophers think and ponder upon this how much is from our experience how much exactly do we know that is inborn within us because today that very much is still an interesting question in the contemporary context and one of those questions of course is how much does our DNA influence our knowledge and one of those questions of course could be a criminology sort of question let's say if someone's parents were a criminal then there's always that aspect of will the children then also have a tendency towards being criminals because of that DNA how much would be influential to the DNA or would it be something that's solely acquired from our experience and therefore the DNA would have absolutely no effect whatsoever so then let's go into a discussion of virtue then because that is what the question of the Mino deals with is that we have Mino having listened to a discussion by Gorgias he's a popular chap in these episodes by now in which you have very much the popular figure of Gorgias everybody loves to go listen to him and listen to his talks so there's Mino having went to listen to Gorgias and now he goes in the start of the dialogue asking for Socrates's opinion about virtue because he's had a listen to what Gorgias has said about virtue and it's blown his mind essentially it's just made him completely just think about things reflect upon them and so that's the way in which we start off the Mino Mino coming to Socrates very much his whole idea has been just put into absolute flux he's coming to Socrates for clarity and so being the great guy that he is Socrates always open always willing to have a conversation with someone and ultimately wanting to help Mino reach a form of consensus for himself and reach a nice clear idea for himself about what exactly is virtue and so one of the key things that you can take out of this dialogue as well is that we have this ongoing discussion about virtue but what's so great about it and how it develops out as a dialogue is in fact the question what is virtue can actually be then changed into the question of what is knowledge 
And so we can take that in a, another way of what is X? And X could be literally changed into anything that you like. What is a chair? What is a table? What is this? And so we don't only have to think about just specifically virtue here, but then developing out the ideas of, well, what are various different objects in the world at the same time, all sort of in the midst of asking what is virtue, we're going to start cutting it down. And in part two next week, we'll see exactly what Plato's going to be arguing for with his theory of recollection. So, let's get into Mino's answer. And it's the first answer that he gives back to Socrates. Socrates picks his mind about this at least three separate times. And why does he do this? is because he wants him to reach that form of consensus again. He wants him to try to have a nice, clear, concise idea of what virtue is. And so, that's how we have Socrates reply back to Mino. Simply him saying to Mino, Okay, you've listened to a talk about virtue. Fantastic. Let me know all about what virtue is then. Let me know what you've learned. And so this is what we have in Mino's first answer back to Socrates then. Man's virtue consists of being able to manage public affairs and in doing so benefit his friends and harm his enemies and to be careful that no harm comes to himself. If you want the virtue of a woman... She must manage the home well, preserve its possessions, and be submissive to her husband. The virtue of a child, whether male or female, is different again, and so is that of an elderly man. There is a virtue for every action and every age, for every task of ours, and for every one of us. So, from all this we can ask, where does Mino's idea of virtue come from and what is he describing? And so let's break down all these little points that he makes here. We have a definition of what man's virtue is. Man's virtue consists of being able to manage public affairs and in doing so benefit his friends, harm his enemies, and be careful that no harm comes to himself. So, we have generally then, man's virtue is being able to have a bit of great time management there, make sure that you're managing your affairs in a great way, you can make sure then your friends will be benefited, you'll harm your enemies, and no harm coming to yourself. Woman's virtue then, he says, is managing the home well, preserve its possessions, and be submissive to her husband. We can have a nice bit of feminist criticism come right in here. 
because we see the whole idea of woman is something that is submissive and so as well as the whole idea that simply a woman also must just simply be a homemaker and take care of the home at the same time. In a very much contemporary context, we can challenge those ideas that a woman doesn't only have to be a homemaker. Why is that? Because equally, she can go about like a man and manage her public affairs in that same way, have a job very much in any field that she fancies whatsoever as well as the fact is she doesn't have to be submissive to a husband she can go out and marry whoever she likes and so it's very much important that you always take these points to task because it's not good enough to say oh it's because of the time period it's is because of the social context or whatever you try to use as a form of trying to justify this form of sexism. It's not justifiable at all. You always have to take it to task and criticize it because, again, there is no justification for sexism. So then we have the definition of virtue for man. We have the definition of virtue for woman. Then he says, depending on whether it's a male or female, the virtue of children will be different, that of an elderly man will be different again, as well as various different virtues for actions, for every single age, and for every single task, and every single body. So we end up with an absolute abundance of virtues for every single thing that we do as well as our ages as well as our genders so then we can return back into that question where does Mino's idea of virtue come from what is he describing and that is an easy enough answer Mino is describing exactly what he has learned from his own experience. Mino is an aristocrat, is an individual, so he is not your everyday man. He is not your regular Joe, farmer or blacksmith, carpenter, whatever you want to have as a different profession. He's a wealthy individual. And so from that, he's learned within his own context then about these specific ideas that he has of virtue. And this will all fit into specifically that Athenian context at the same time that these are Athenian virtues that people within Athens would have of each other. And so it's all very much from his experience, what he's learned, what he's grown up with, what Athens and its social context has taught him that these are good things for people to have, be it man or woman, or if you're a child, and so forth. All these different ideas of what virtue is. And so, let's take Mino's definition, and then let's put it in a completely different context. And let's use 
a different example here and ask ourselves the question, what is a dog? Easy enough answer that immediately pops into your head. A dog is a canine. Let's go with a good old scientific definition. And therefore, it's a mammal. And then let's go into all the different attributes that there are different breeds of dog. Let's give some examples of that. There is Dalmatians. There's Dash Hounds. There are Pugs. There are Bloodhounds. There is Border Collies. There are Chihuahuas. There's Papillions. There is German Shepherds. And so on and so on. We could be here all day listing all the different types of breeds of dogs. And then also building upon the idea of mammals. They're all hairy. They have tails. They all have teeth. They all are carnivores. And then of course you go into all the different colors. Various different colors of dogs. Black, white cream, brown, all the various different shades of brown, and so on. And again, we could be here all day listing all the different types of colors of dog. From all this, we have a nice little definition of what dog is. All the different types of breeds, all the different attributes that you can have towards mammals, and so on. Then, let's build upon this even more. Where does our idea of dog come from? And again, easy enough explanation for that. Our idea of what a dog is comes from our experience and having experienced various different instances of what a dog is. And even if we don't have a direct experience of a dog, that we haven't actually met every single type of breed of dog that there is, we still know from having looked at photographs or drawings and so forth within books of what to expect from all the different types of breeds. And so we have a nice definition. We can say that it's from our experience that we know what a dog is. But then let's go into say, does our answer clearly define what a dog is? And this is starting to problematize it a little here. If I said to you, okay, I want to know what is a dog. And then you go, okay, I'll let you know what a dog is. A dog is a Labrador. And it has this beautiful golden color and it's nice and hairy. I go, okay, but then what about this other Labrador that's black? You go, oh, that's just a different color. There's lots of different colors of dog. I go, oh, okay, like what? Like why? Like cream? And so on. I go, okay, but what about the hairiness of dog? You go, oh, that doesn't apply to every single dog. Some dogs have 
slightly longer hair than others. Some dogs are short-haired, and so on. I go, okay, what about the whole work aspect of dogs? And then you reply back, oh, yeah, you people have used dogs not only in terms of a domestic situation where we look after them, but, yeah, people have put them to work and doing various different tasks as well. Just look at border collies, for instance, and how much they help farmers with herding sheep. And then you start to get into the problems of this. Every time I ask, what is a dog? It requires an answer that in itself needs an explanation of something else. And so when you say, and go back to these examples. I need to know what hairiness is in order to know what you're talking about in regards to whether they're long-haired or short-haired. I need to also have an idea of what you're saying about for the various different types of colors and so on. It always implies that you've had a direct knowledge of the various different qualities that are being described. And also that when you describe one thing, it always leads on to something else every single time. A dog is this, a dog is that. Dogs are these types of breeds and so on. That's not what Socrates wants or Plato wants as an answer. Why? Because it leads down a road of continually having to explain yourself. Can you explain to me exactly what a Labrador is? Well, a Labrador is a dog that helps people. Okay, a Labrador can be a guide dog, but what does being a guide dog mean? It means taking around people who have sight problems and can't see properly, and so they assist them. Oh, also a Labrador is golden. Okay, what is golden then? Golden is also like the color of coins. Okay, what are gold coins? Gold coins are things that you use in order to buy things. And what can you buy with gold coins? All various different objects, like candy. What various types of candy can you buy? And the problem you can see in that line of questioning, exactly the problem at hand, you start to move further and further away from the original question that you asked of, what is a dog? And so this is what Socrates also starts to pick at of the problem is because then he wants a nice clear definition. And that is just to say, tell me what a dog is. What is X? And just give me a simple answer that won't lead down a road where it continually gets further and further away from what I originally asked. So let's take this then and move from the discussion about dogs and then let's apply this to ourselves and our own self-identity because we can very much do exactly the same thing here and ask 
Well, what is ourself? And the answer to that, we can go down a biological route. We can say, okay, I am a collection of organs, bones, blood, flesh, muscle. All those lovely bodily things. Or you can go down a environmental route. You can say, I am influenced by my social and cultural background. That is to say, where I am born in the world will have an influence upon how I think and how I develop as well into my own idea of the self and who I think I am, let's say. Or you can go down the roots of personality. I like various different things. These types of books, these types of movies, this type of food. I dislike these types of books, these types of movies, these types of food. And so, various different ways, again, that we can all have a definition of ourself. Biologically, environmentally, as well as personality-wise. And then we can do the same thing we did with the dog example. Where does this collection of things all come from? And it comes from our experience again. That is to say, we have direct experience with our body. We can touch it. We can feel it. We can learn all about it. We can know exactly from anatomy books what our insides look like. And from the environmental context, it's something we experience when we are in whatever country that we're in that we'll have that direct relation into the culture as well as the society then for our personality very much as all things we experience watching certain types of movies you become a really big fan of it let's say horror movies for instance because you've watched various different types of horror movies friday the 13th Nightmare on Elm Street, The Shining, and so forth. And then that all developed into your love of that genre. Same thing, of course, for reading. And the same thing, again, for food. Trying a certain type of food, absolutely adoring it. And then trying another type of food, you absolutely despise the taste of it. Spit it straight in the rubbish, straight in the bin never want to taste it again. And so, all these things developed out, of course, from our direct experience again. But then, let's also apply the problem that we did to the dog's example to our idea of the self here. Does this enable us to reach a clear, definite answer of who we are? And we have to say no to that answer. Why? Because, again, like the dog answer, we reach 
so much different variances there. We have a road leading us down biology. We have a road leading us down personality. We have a road leading us down the environment route. And then again, we can do the same problem of, okay, tell me what types of film that you like. I like horror movies. Okay, give me some examples of that. Okay, The Shining. Who starred in The Shining? Jack Nicholson. What makes you like Jack Nicholson? Oh, it's because he's a great actor. He's also starred in other great movies. Okay, what other great films has he been in? Oh, he's also been in As Good As It Gets, which is a bit of a romantic movie starring Helen Hunt. And then reply goes, Oh, I also like Helen Hunt. She was in Twister, right? About chasing tornadoes. And again, you can see the problem of you get further and further away from the initial questions about your personality, you and self-identity. It's again the problem that you face that you have an abundance, lots and lots and lots of different things, but again, what does Plato and Socrates want? Just one simple, clear and concise answer. So, overall then, we can say the problem with Mino's answer, and we've taken that into completely different context, away from virtue, into discussing dogs, as well as discussing our personal identity, and what makes up our idea of the self. Overall, we can see the problem with his answer is that a multiplicity of virtues does not clearly define what virtue is. We can put it another way to say that virtue is A, B, C, D, and so on. And this is also what Socrates says back to Mino. I seem to be in great luck, Mino. While I'm looking for one virtue, I've found you to have a whole swarm of them. And here we get a bit of the drama of the dialogue coming out, because we've got to think about swarm here, and immediately what comes to mind is that we have a swarm of bees all buzzing around. What does that do? Something that's uncomfortable, something that we don't like whatsoever, just this whole idea of a swarm there. And so we have this clear association with the idea of swarm, with discomfort. And then we can say, what does this highlight a problem of? That every time we attempt to define a term, we always have to explain another, and we get further and further away from our initial question, like we did in the dog example, as well as we did for talking about ourselves. So then let's move from Mino's discussion into Socrates' reply back. So every single time we've said so far, what does Socrates want is a clear and precise definition. 
Give me a nice, clear and precise definition of virtue. Stop giving me lots and lots of examples. I don't want an answer that involves what is virtue for man, women, children, the elderly and so on. Just give me a nice definition of what virtue is. And this is what Socrates says. Even if they are many and various, all of them have one and the same form which makes them virtues. And it is right to look to this when one is asked to make clear what virtue is. So then from that, we have starting to dip our toes into what is Socrates's way that we can reach a clear definition of virtue. How do we reach a clear definition? So let's go back into the quote and try to find out. Even if there are many and various, so taking into account the ways in which Mino has given this nice abundance of different examples, all of them have one and the same form which makes them virtues. And so here you can see what Socrates is trying to do. You've given lots of examples here. There's so many, it's a swarm, but they all have one in the same form. So here he's immediately trying to make me now think and reflect, what are some of the qualities that they all share between man, woman, children, the elderly, and so on. One of these qualities was good management. Man had to be good managers of their public affairs. Women had to be good managers of the household. So that's one quality that you can identify within Mino's answers that they start to have in common. What are the common points, the similarities, the comparisons that we can make that come out from all this? So we don't immediately have a complete abundance, but we can start to reach these general points and general qualities. And then when we start to get towards that, we'll start to understand what virtue is. So let's use Socrates' discussion then and apply that back into the dog example and ask ourselves, well, what is the same features that all dogs share? Precisely that, going back into the scientific definition, they are all mammals. They are all hairy. Or are they all hairy? In fact, a quick Google search actually shows that there are hairless breeds of dog. And this breed is called, very complicated name, but it's simplified down to the Mexican hairless or just Zolo. So, they're not always hairy. In fact, there's instances where you do have a hairless breed. So you can say that about dogs, that they always are hairy. But you can in fact say that they are always mammals. 
because then that goes into the next point. Do they always have four legs? Yes, they do. And so one of the questions then we have to ask in the midst of all this is, do these qualities always remain the same over time? Because if it's something that changes, that is to say there is going to be a bit of a fluctuation, like the instance of certain hairless breeds of dog, then you can't use that as a point because it has to be something that is shared between all the various different breeds, like the fact that they all have four legs and are mammals. And so, how does this more clearly define what dogs are is because we're allowed to reach that clear, precise definition and don't have to go into a continual explanation that's ongoing all the time and in which you don't have to care about all the various different types of breeds, you don't have to go down the route of explaining all the various types of colors and so on. You don't have to worry about all those various different experiential qualities that are always in variation. Rather, you can focus on these simple points. What remains the same over time? Then you are allowed to reach these concise points. They are all mammals. They all share these certain qualities of having four legs. And so, that then allows us to reach a much more precise form of knowledge and precise answer because we're able to define exactly what it is in a much better way, in a clearer way. And we're able to give not only a clear answer, but able to understand everything in a much clearer way. And because from these general points, we're able to reach a much deeper understanding by allowing ourselves to reflect upon the structure itself. What are these similar points? And reaching that similarity, we can see through all the different variances that we reach certain ideas that we can always attribute to dogs in this given instance that will always remain the same. And so therefore, our idea of what a dog is, is it going to be something that's very clear and if it's something that's very clear, therefore we have a clear idea of it, we reach an understanding of it, it has meaning, and so on. Whilst as before, if it was in an abundance, like all the various different qualities, all the various different types of breeds, our idea doesn't remain clear. It's hazy. But on the other hand, through reaching that precise answer, we reach that form of clarity. And so let's move on from dogs again, back into our ideas of us and the self again. And so before we had all those various different answers based upon biology, our environment, our personality. But we can say, well, what are the features that we all share? 
And one immediate answer to that, of course, is that we're all human beings and that we all have bodies. And another quality that we all share is that our bodies will age over time. We are all born and we will all die. These are certain qualities that we all share. Do these qualities then, taking the next step in the argument, always remain the same over time? And here is where it gets interesting when thinking about ourselves. If we say, does our body remain the same over time, then the answer is no because it ages and so it's something that's not always the same. We get wrinkles over time is a good example of that. Or people go bald over time is another good example. So we can't clearly define who we are based upon our bodies for Plato. Using a contemporary context, we can say, well, we understand now DNA. DNA is a quality that we all share. But then we can say, well, does that remain the same over time? And again, a quick Google search easily finds the answer to that. Because we only have to go to nature.com and fantastic little article here that starts off with the title, DNA is constantly changing through the process of mutation. And let's just go a little bit into the explanation. DNA is a dynamic and adaptable molecule. As such, the nucleotide sequences found within it are subject to change as the result of a phenomenon called mutation. Depending on how a particular mutation modifies an organism's genetic makeup, it can prove harmless, helpful, or even hurtful. Sometimes a mutation may even cause dramatic changes in the physiology of an affected organism. Of course, in order to better understand the varying effects of mutations, it's first necessary to understand what mutations are and how they occur. But we don't need to go into the whole explanation of what they are and how they occur, because all what we need to simply understand is going back into the points that we've just raised. Is DNA something that's always the same over time? From this, we can say no, because it's subject to mutations. Therefore, DNA is something that changes over time. So we can't have it in relation to our body. We can't even have it in relation to DNA. Of course, that has, again, relation into our body. And so... What doesn't change over time when we come into think of ourselves? Hmm, if everything physical has this whole relation into time and therefore it starts and stops and everything that we know in a physical sense has to live and die, hmm, I wonder what it would be be when we thought of notions of ourselves and then the answer comes in 
It has to be the soul. Because the soul is something that is metaphysical. And it is, therefore, unaffected by time. It's always the same. It's eternal. It's pure. And that is where the argument is going to eventually head towards in the second part of the discussion with Plato's theory of recollection is going to depend upon the existence of the soul. And then comes in an immediate thought and criticism to say, well, how does Plato prove the existence of the soul? And we're not actually going to receive an answer to that in Mino. It's not until you go into Fido that, in fact, you reach the answer for that. But this is also just to touch upon a really interesting point when you think about our self-identity there for Plato and how it has to be in relation to the soul because of the soul being something that's unchanging and always the same over time. And so then, it nicely allows us to go into part two for next week at the same time. So, rounding off this episode then, we can say, when we attempt to define something, it's problematical due to us giving several different characteristics and going back into those points for me now, and virtue. Virtue is this for man, this for woman, this for children, this for the elderly, this for every single age, and so on. So another way we can put it is X is A, B, C, D, dot, 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 and so on. It means it will continually go on and on. How do we start to reach that precise and concise definition that is, for Plato, we arrive at that clear definition by reflecting upon the same features that are shared throughout, like we did for dogs, that they're all mammals and have four legs, and that we have for the soul, that we all arguably have a soul. We therefore, and what the important point about this is, we can focus upon the universal qualities that always remain the same over time. X is always A, B, C. And in the next special episode, we'll be continuing our discussion of the Mino, building upon these points of the soul, going into discuss Mino's paradox, as well as Plato's theory of recollection. Many thanks for listening to the episode. I hope you enjoyed my discussion of Plato's Mino, which covered the first half of the dialogue. Feel free to check out my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dissecting philosophy. Drop me an email at my address dissectingphilosophy at gmail.com tip me a coffee at ko-fi.com forward slash dissecting philosophy and lastly I can be found on Twitter at I am a rubber man. Many thanks for listening and I hope you'll join me next time. <laughs>